So Mark 12, starting at verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses... In the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far off from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. 
As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we do not uh, survive on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. Uh, nourish us, we pray, that we would grow to know and love and serve and trust and honour you more through all our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. They call him the Bishop of Bling. Uh, the uh, German Catholic bishop who's been in the news this past week for all of the wrong reasons because the, uh, the Pope has just stood him down temporarily pending the outcome of a financial investigation. Uh, it seems that the bishop has been living the high life, that he's been enjoying life just a little bit too much. Uh, people are not happy especially given that the Pope is wanting to uh, promote austerity and uh, so that the clergy can actually connect better with poorer people. So it's no surprise that people were not happy when the so-called Bishop of Bling uh, went to uh, visit poor communities in the third world and chose to fly business class. That's not the main concern, though. The main concern is about a cost blowout on a new building complex in his diocese, which includes a residence for himself. A residence costing 2.9 million euros, uh, complete with a 60 square metre dining room and a bathtub that cost 15,000 euros. Would you like a bathtub like that? Well, last week the bishop flew into Rome to explain himself to the Pope and very wisely this time he chose to fly on Ryanair. Anyone ever flown on Ryanair? Good on you, Mary. Miss Austerity, Ryanair, that's the... Uh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> I understand it's uh, very much definitely a no-bling, no-frills, no... Bling, no no anything kind of airline. In fact, Ryanair, that's the airline that uh, uh, tried to get approval to sell tickets for passengers to stand up for the entirety of the flight. <laughs> that's what I call no bling. Money and religion, uh, two hot topics which feature in Mark chapter 12 as the simmering tension between Jesus and the religious leaders begins to boil to the surface. 
And if you care to open up at Mark 12, the, the passage begins with a, an is, the issue of giving to the government and it finishes with the issue of giving to God and in between there's a whole lot of stuff about what is truly valuable in life. So remember it's Passover time, Jesus is in Jerusalem and the religious leaders have had enough of him. Uh, there are some who want to kill him. There are others who want to discredit him. And so this is what we see as we work our way through the passage today. Uh, in verses 13 through to 27, the first section, there are two attempts to trap Jesus in his words. Two attempts by people to get Jesus to say things which are either going to incriminate him or are going to discredit him. The first people to have a go are a, uh, a group of, a collection of people who are both Pharisees and Herodians. Now we know a bit about the Pharisees, don't we? These are generally depicted as the bad guys in the New Testament. Uh, the Pharisees were originally uh, uh, religious men who had a great desire to obey God's law. Uh, so, so great was their desire that they uh, created a whole lot of rules and regulations around God's law, like a fence around God's law, so you couldn't even get anywhere near disobeying God's law. And eventually, of course, their rules and their regulations became the all-important thing. So there's a group of Pharisees. There's a group of Herodians. These are not religious uh, people. The Herodians were a political group. They were fans of the Herod family who uh, were in uh, cohoots with the Romans. And so in verses 13 through to 17, this uh, coalition of Pharisees and Herodians, they approach Jesus and they've got some very nice things to say about Jesus. Have a look at that in verse 14. They approached Jesus and in verse 14 they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, you know, if you're standing there at the time and a group of Herodians and Pharisees come up to Jesus and say things like that, well, you kind of wonder where's this heading, don't you? Because what are they doing? Uh, in Australian colloquialism, we'd say that they're buttering him up. That's the term I'm looking at. They're buttering Jesus up. Because then comes their question, and it's a question about, well, they want some tax advice, basically. And the question is, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, these are the days of the Roman Empire. The Romans were the occupying force in Judea and uh, Judea was a, was a special class of province. Uh, it was uh, known as an imperial province, which meant that, uh, that the responsibility for uh, paying for the costs, the expenses of running the province, the responsibility laid with the, the emperor, with the Caesar. Uh, as opposed to a senatorial province where the Senate looked after things. And so in order to raise money, the emperor at the time, who was Tiberius, he required everybody to pay a tax each year. Now, can you imagine how people felt about that? Uh, how do you feel about 
paying any kind of tax. Uh, you know, well, this was worse than that because uh, people were pretty unhappy about it. They were unhappy for a couple of reasons. One was that it was a um, it was a flat tax rate of one denarius per person. That, by the way, is why they conducted censuses in the ancient world. They would conduct a census like the one before Jesus was born uh, in order to determine how many people are living there in order to determine what the tax revenue should be. People were not happy because it was a flat tax of one denarius, which meant that it disadvantaged the poor people. Uh, a much greater cost if you're poor than if you were rich. But the second reason people were not happy about it was what it was paying for. It was paying for the expenses of running Judea, which meant that it was paying for the expense of having a military in Judea. It was paying for the expenses, paying the wages of the soldiers who were the occupying force. And so it's a pretty unpopular tax. And what's happening here is they're saying, well, shall we, should we pay this tax or not? And it's a trap. Because if Jesus says, well, yes, you should obey the government and pay the tax, then the crowds will reject him. But if he says no, then what do you call that? That's, that's uh, sedition, isn't it? That's like treason. That's as good enough a reason as any to report him to the authorities, have him arrested and put him on trial and executed. So they're trying to trap Jesus. How does he answer well, second part of verse 15, he says this. Uh, he says, well, why are you trying to trap me? So he sees through their hypocrisy. And he, he asks, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. There's a picture of a Roman denarius on your outlines. Can everyone see that? It's uh, the denarius used at the time. It's uh, got the uh, portrait of Tiberius on it. In the Roman Empire, coins were the, uh, were the mass media of the day. Coins were the way of getting the message spread throughout the em empire. And uh, they were the way of, uh, of reminding everybody who was boss. So every time you go to the market to buy something, you pull out your coins, and whose face do you see? You see the face of the boss, the emperor. And the inscription on this coin says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Uh, on the flip side, there's a picture of his mother, uh, depicted as a goddess with the words Maxim Pontiff, which means high priest. So uh, it's an idolatrous coin, is it not? It's idolatrous on both sides, no matter which way you look at it. But what Jesus does is he holds the coin and he says to these Pharisees and Herodians, he says, whose portrait is this? Now, actually, the word there for portrait uh, is the Greek word icon and icon means image and so literally what he's saying is whose image is on this coin well 
Caesar's image is on the coin. Uh, But he says, so give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Caesar's image is on the coin, but where do we see God's image? Where is God's image to be found? Remember we looked at Genesis a couple of months back in Genesis chapter 1, that God created in his own image, he created man. He created man in his own image. We are the image of God. And uh, so that's why Jesus' answer is absolutely stunning. Uh, In verse 17, they were amazed at what he'd said. Because what Jesus is saying is, you can can give the coin to Caesar, but give yourself, give your very life, give everything that that, that you are to God. Because you are God's image. And that, of course, is the very thing which they were not doing. So then in verses 18 through to 27, another group decides to have a crack at it are trying to trap Jesus. They're a religious group, uh, the Sadducees, and they're hoping to do a little bit of uh, point scoring on a matter of theology. You see, the Sadducees were Jews who believed in God, but they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in heaven or in hell. They believed that when you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. Now, that's a little bit hard to stomach, isn't it? It's a bit hard to understand how someone can be religious but yet not believe in the afterlife. And yet over the years in this church, I've had some profoundly sad conversations with congregation members who on their deathbeds have told me that they don't believe that there's an afterlife. Or when I've tried to raise the issue of what's about to happen to them, they've changed the subject and have not wanted to talk about it. You see, that's religion without faith. Religion without faith, and that's exactly like the Sadducees. And so here, what they do is they they throw a theological curved ball at Jesus. Um, See, remember that uh, the law of Moses says that if a man... uh, uh, who's married, uh, dies without having any kids, and he's got an unmarried brother, then it's the responsibility of the unmarried brother to marry the widow and try to produce kids uh, to maintain the family line of the deceased brother. And we looked at that with respect to Boaz and Ruth and, uh, and so on. And uh, so that's the law of Moses. So in verse 19, there's a hypothetical that they put to Jesus. So they say to Jesus, okay, look, there's this, there's this woman whose husband's got six brothers. Now, uh, her husband dies without producing any kids. So she goes and marries the next brother, and he dies without having any kids. So she marries the next brother, and he dies without having any kids, and he die- she marries the next brother, and he dies... And eventually she goes through all seven brothers before she dies herself. And you've got to wonder about her cooking, don't you? you know, there's something going on there, very, very suspicious. But, the, but the, 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 the question is this, the question is this. Given that polygamy is wrong, 
in heaven, whose wife will she be? And you can imagine them, the Sadducees feeling a little bit smug about this, this clever question, because they think that they've, they've trapped Jesus here because Jesus is either going to have to accept polygamy in heaven or he's going to have to deny the existence of heaven. But there's no need for a clever answer. Uh, in verse 24, Jesus just shoots straight. He just tells them plainly, you're wrong. For three reasons... For three reasons. First of all, he says that they don't know the scriptures. Think about when Moses met God at the burning bush. And, uh, you know, what did God say? Did he say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? Did he say that? No. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And why? Because they're still alive. Because God is the living, not the God of the dead. So first of all, they don't know the scriptures. Secondly, the Sadducees don't know the power of God. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe that the God who has created the, the whole universe and the whole physical world, that he's got the power to raise someone from the dead and that he's got the power to have created a spiritual world. They don't believe that. They don't, believe, they don't know the, the word of God they don't know the power of God. And thirdly, they don't even know about heaven and marriage. Because guess what? In heaven, there is no marriage. There's no marriage in heaven. Because our joy and our satisfaction and our fulfilment in heaven is found in being seated around the throne room of the living God for all of eternity in a relationship with him. And it's uh, interesting news for some people because I sometimes hear people say, well, when I die I'll be blessed because I'll be with my husband or my wife who's up there already and you can understand the love and the affection there but actually that's second rate in comparison to what it'll mean to be connected perfectly with the Lord of the universe forever. It also means that those of us who do not marry in this life have no, no difference with others uh, in the next life. No disadvantage whatsoever. But the issue here of our joy and our satisfaction and our fulfilment being found in the throne room of the living God forever really now brings us to the heart of the matter. Now, there's a reality TV show that started in America. Uh, pray that it never finds its way onto our TV screens. It's called The Preachers of L.A. Anyone heard of it? Well, it's a, it's a series, it's a reality series, which follows the lives of six uh, millionaire or multi-millionaire mega-pastors as they reveal their lavish lifestyles, their uh, luxury mansions, their prestige cars and, and plenty of bling in their lives. And their message is this. God wants you to be rich. And hey, we're just leading by example, as good pastors should. Right? But what is the big message of the Bible? Well, in verse 28, there's someone else who has a question. 
and uh, just have a look at verse 28. I'll just read that out. In verse 28, one of the teachers of the law, and this guy's a bit different, one of the teachers of the law, he came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? That's a great question, isn't it? Which of all of the commandments, which is the most important? In other words, what is God's message to us? Verse 29, the most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second one is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Now when you think about it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. If we gave up our whole lives to, to loving God and to serving others, then all the other commandments would fall into place, wouldn't they? Do not murder, do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not covet, and so on. Because all of those things are about mistreating God and mistreating your neighbour. Jesus says to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself. Now, why then should we give up our whole lives to God? Well, in verse 35, um, everyone had stopped asking Jesus questions. In fact, no one dared to. So Jesus starts asking the questions. And in verse 35, Jesus asks a question to the crowd. Take a look at it, verse 35. When Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. So here's the question. The scriptures say that the Christ is the descendant of David, the son of David. And that's what the teachers of the law would say. Psalm 2, in Psalm 2, David, speaking of the Christ, calls him my Lord. So, my Lord uh, said to, the, the Lord said to my Lord, and so on. So the question is this of Jesus, well, how can the Christ on the one hand be David's son, but on the other hand be David's Lord? How would the teachers of the law answer that one? And Jesus just left the question hanging in midair. It delighted the crowd because the crowd knew that the teachers of the law who opposed Jesus would, they wouldn't be able to answer that question. They'd be stumped because they didn't love God. They didn't give to God 
These were people who took for themselves in the name of religion. A number of years ago, a, a Christian leader stayed in our home. And at the time, he had just been nominated for a senior position within his denomination. It was a position which involved title, status, and a $25 million residence. When I asked him how he felt about this, he was concerned. Uh, it was for very good reason that uh, other people had nominated him and wanted him in that job, but he was concerned that it would take him away from doing what he loved to do most of all, and that's telling people about God and helping people to come into a personal relationship with God through the gospel. The teachers of the law had no such concern. Verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. It kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? These are guys who they got the outward show of religion, but they love, they love the robes. They love to look different to other people. They love the status that comes through being a religious leader in a religious community. And it's because although they look like they're giving to God, they're actually taking for themselves. And in verses 41 to 43, they stand in sharp contrast to a, to a little old lady. On your outline, there's a photo of two small coins. Can you see that? I've actually got them here uh, in my hand. You can have a look at them later if you want. They're very old, a couple of thousand years old. They're not very impressive, are they? They're called lepters. Uh, the word lepter means thin. Uh, it's where we get the word leaf from, by the way. And these, these two coins are called thin for a reason, because they're very thin, because there's not much to them, because they're not very impressive because they're hardly worth anything. But to God, the two lepters in the passage were worth everything. Because when a poor widow dropped two lepters in the temple collection box, in verse 44, Jesus says, you know how much she put in? Everything. She put in all that she had to live for, to live on rather. You see, it's not about the money, is it? It's about the heart. It's about giving to God what belongs to God. It's about giving over our very lives 
to loving, serving, obeying, honouring God. It's about giving ourselves, for we are the image of God. It's about living for the resurrection. It's about living for the eternal heavenly reality and not living for the bling of this life. It's about loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And why should we live our lives for God? Well, it's because of that question which Jesus left hanging. How can the Christ be both David's son and David's Lord? Well, the answer to that is resurrection. The answer to that is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 in the passage which I've printed for you on the key verse on the other side of your sheet, where Paul says that Christ is the descendant of David by human descent. But through his resurrection from the dead, he has been declared with power to be the Son of God. It's about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. For the death and the resurrection of Jesus means that we can be forgiven. It means that we can live for God in his resurrected eternal heavenly realm forever. And that's a great reason, friends. That's a terrific reason. That's the best reason to give up our very lives now to loving, serving, honouring and obeying God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that because of what he has done in his death and resurrection, that we have every reason to give up our whole lives to serving you. Father, we pray that you would work in our lives, that uh, you would take away the self-centeredness and the, the sin and uh, cleanse us to make us more honouring to you. We pray that we would be people, Father God, who are not uh, people who love the bling of this life but look forward to the eternal reality. We pray, Father God, that we would not get caught up in the trappings of religion but rather that, like the widow, that we would be people who have a heart for you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.